and let's give our attention to the reading of God's inerrant words, Zechariah chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what it is, what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. And shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for the majesty of your word. Lord, from our vantage point on earth, uh, things can look dicey. Things can look sketchy. When we look at things from a purely natural perspective, we can wonder, where are you? What are you doing? Uh, Are you even there at all? Are any of your promises true? And your word peels back the curtains of time and eternity to give us your perspective on things, to show us who you are and what it is you're doing and what you have done and how we can know that because you've been faithful in the past, you will be faithful in the future and we may be able to trust you in that. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us, uh, illuminate our minds to your word. Without your spirit teaching us, Lord, we have no hope of understanding Uh, but you promise that your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and that you would give us hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know why why I think people hate paying taxes? You know why I hate paying taxes? I hate paying taxes not because I don't want to invest in the national community or the state community. It's not because I don't want to pay my fair share and pay and support defense or support the infrastructure or can do those things or 
invest in and support a safety net for people or to care for the poor. I want to do all those things. We want to do all those things. Uh, and yet I still I hate writing that check. You know why? Because I'm pretty sure uh, that for every dollar I give the government, they take about 85, 90 cents and just flush it down the toilet. Uh, am I wrong? And I'm talking, this is not a political statement. I don't care who is in power. I'm talking the federal government, you know, buying toilet seats for the Pentagon at 800 bucks a pop, uh, you know, funding billions of dollars for abstract studies so that we can understand some, you know, even more abstract uh, social phenomenon. Everybody, the whole thing, uh, for all the power and strength of the U.S. federal government, they're about the least, about the, the last people on earth that I'm going to trust to do a good job with my money. <laughs> now, but you know who I love writing checks to? I love writing checks to my IRA Roth retirement fund account. You know why? Uh, I don't know anything about them. I mean, not really. I've never met anybody from this company. They don't have any banks that I can walk into and, and look at. Uh, but I researched them as best I can, which means I Googled it, right? Which is not really research, but uh, I researched it as best I could, and I found a company that had a solid track record of stability uh, and return on investment and, and had re references that were reliable and... Um, uh, and so I send them this, you know, I send them a check every month. Never seen them, never talked to them, and I have no doubt, I just don't have any concern that they're not going to come through on their promise and return my money to me when I retire with interest, and they're going to manage it well. Uh, why? Because it's not just strength and size that matter uh, when it comes to making promises. It's the reputation of the one making the promise that matters. It's the proven track record of the one making the promise that matters. Uh, it is the character of the promise maker that makes the promise secure. And that's really what this passage is all about. Those people that Zechariah is writing to are people who had literally lost everything. We talked about uh, a couple weeks ago about Daniel, the prophet Daniel, having gone through and seen the entire bloody cycle of Israel's downfall from a world power to a, a, a people scattered throughout the earth with zero power. And that's the people that Zechariah was writing to, people who had come back from being defeated militarily, from being exported out of their homeland and dispersed throughout this vast kingdom uh, in order to erase the memory of their cultural and ethnic heritage. Uh, and these people had finally come back and all they had, all they had were the promises of God. Literally had nothing else. And so how are they to know? How are they to lean into those promises after everything that happened that was so bad? How are they to know that God's promises were still true 
And the answer is they know the same way that we know that God's promises are still true and God's promises are going to come to pass. And that is, and that is this, that no matter how bad things get, uh, God has promised to make everything all right and he alone has the power and he alone has the proven track record to make it happen. That's what we're going to look at one part at a time. No matter how bad things get, uh, God's promises of making everything right are true because he has the power and the track record to prove it. So let's look at that one little part at a time. No matter how bad things get. Uh, if you remember a couple years ago here in California, there was a wildfire in the Sierra Nevadas called the Campfire. And the campfire, uh, one of the, uh, the campfire went through a town called Paradise, California, which was once a beautiful mountain town. In fact, we had some people from our church, some in, uh, an intern and his wife, uh, Rich and Crystal Haynes, were from Paradise at the time this happened. Uh, and what was once a beautiful mountain community, named, literally named Paradise, overnight was turned to ashes. And all we saw on the, on the, on the you know, the TV every day was media accounts of people uh, who, who literally ran for their lives with fire on both sides of the street as they drove out of town. Uh, many did not make it out. And those who did make it out and come back, they came back to nothing but just the charred concrete foundations of their homes in the heat of that wildfire. Nothing survived. Uh, and the same thing had literally befallen the Israelites that were the audience that, that, um, that this letter was written to. Jerusalem, beautiful city on a mountaintop. Uh, until 586 BC when the Babylonian Empire came and its vast armies leveled Jerusalem, burned the temple, burned the city, leveled the walls, uh, destroyed everything, wiping Israel off the face of the map as a political power forever, uh, and taking everyone that survived far away into exile in the nations, where they dwelled in a strange place with strange people, with a strange language, without uh, any of their own, without them, anything that was familiar to them. And that was on purpose. Those ancient empires would conquer nations and take the survivors and assimilate them throughout the empire to erase any knowledge, any cultural or a knowledge of their own heritage so that they wouldn't rise up and rebel. Uh, and by God's hand, though, in God's amazing providence and in the keeping of his promises, God promised and actually prophesied through Daniel. You'll be in exile for 70 years and then I will bring you back. Uh, and they were brought back. In 538 BC, God, started, God, God caused the emperor of the Persian emperor of the world, Cyrus, the king Cyrus of the Persian empire, stirred in his heart to allow all the Jews to come back to Jerusalem and gave them permission to rebuild the temple. And as they came back, streaming back to Jerusalem, those who were able, full of joy and full of hope, thinking that this is going to be the great revival and the restoration of Israel and all the promises that God had made in the past are going to come true, they got to 
their home and there was nothing there but just the charred foundations of a destroyed city. They got together and rebuilt the temple and on the day that they had... The day for celebrating the temple's completion, the people who were old enough to remember the old temple literally fell down and wept because the new temple was so pathetic in comparison with the old. And life got harder. They came home to nothing but the charred foundations of their city, no temple, which represented the power and the presence of God, seemed to be gone from them. There was no wall which was the only means of real protection in the ancient world at that time, but to have a city wall. Uh, and there was no city. Their people, their culture, gone. They came back with nothing. Nothing but an old book full of unfulfilled promises. And you can imagine they might be a little discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged about the church. I am. I'm discouraged all the time about the church. You know, I felt, I felt like uh, for a long time, I felt like a salmon swimming upstream. You know, I was originally witnessed to by Pentecostal Amway dealers. God bless them. They loved me and they did the best to share the gospel with me that they could, but... You know, I, I, I got a suspicion pretty quickly that there was some uh, discrepancies with the Bible, and uh, so I went to Bible college, and, then, and I felt like a, I spent like the first, I don't know, half of my Christian life like a salmon swimming upstream trying to find the true church. I finally got to the Reformed Church, and I was like, yes, we've made it, you know? And then you find out like... <sighs> Just what a, wreck, what a train wreck the Reformed Church is. They get so discouraged. How can, how can we get our theology so right and, it, and yet be so sinful and broken at the same time, which is really what our theology says, right? But, man, I get discouraged all the time about the state of the church. I want so badly for the church to be this unified front that's pure in its theology, that seeks to truly, like, live in the world in such a way that people see the beauty of Christ in our actions uh, and, and, and to treat each other kindly and to interact in the world with, with patience and grace. Uh, and it's just not like that. The church is in disarray. It's overrun by ugly orthodoxy and beautiful heresy. And I watch friends that I care about all the time getting sucked out of truth and into error. Uh, and there's nothing that seems that can be done about it. There's schism, fighting, fear, systemic institutional, generational error in the church that seems almost impossible to correct at this point. There's a waning respect in the world. We're vulnerable. We're insignificant. And it sucks. Kind of sucks. <laughs> I remember, I mean, you know, I've come from being a drug addict, right? I mean, I was like the low... <laughs> talking about a... a a people group that's despised upon the earth, you know. That was me. 
And it was almost like this weird high that came with it when God got me sober and put me in school, gave me my mind back, and I started doing well. I was like, man, I'm wearing a suit. I'm like going to school with guys that went to like Annapolis and stuff. Like, I am the, I'm going to be somebody. <laughs> and then you get into the church, and it's just a, you know, we're despised. And I think maybe God is loading the church up with guys like me to prepare us for the road ahead. Yeah. And I'm discouraged. Where's God? What is he doing? I've got this book. I've got these promises. But how do I know? How do I know it's going to actually happen? How do I know that I'm putting my hope in the right thing and that I won't be disappointed? Uh, you know what the great thing about Zechariah? Zechariah's name, it means God remembers. And it means God remembers us, it remembers us, his people. He remembers us and he is acting and he is moving in history if we know how and where to look. And that's the second, second point is this, is that God has made promises that God is going to make everything all right. Um, Zechariah is a minor prophet, which is um, almost synonymous with mumbo jumbo. It's the kind of stuff that when you're on your yearly Bible reading plan, uh, you know, you're in, the, you're in the history books and you're like, okay, I totally get this, I get this, I get this, and then you get to the minor prophets and you have no idea what they're talking about and you want to just skip over that. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's almost like they're speaking a foreign language. Um, however, the minor prophets are masterpieces. They're masterpieces of, of God's communication to us. And, but it takes, like anything worthwhile, it takes a little bit of effort and time to understand how they're speaking. What we, the, the, what we call the prophetic idiom, and the way they use language, the way they, are t the way they go about teaching us. Uh, this is how I like to think about it. The minor prophets are like the Rosetta Stone of the Bible. They take... They take the old, the old way of prophecy, just like the Rosetta Stone, if you know what the Rosetta Stone is, it was a, a, a stone with three, uh, the story told on it basically three times, once in old uh, Egyptian pic, uh, pictographs, which no one understood at the time, and then it, the second was the same writing in a new Egyptian text, the third was a writing in Greek, and it, and it was the key to understanding the old Egyptian pictographs. Well, in the Old Testament, much of the prophecy in the Old Testament isn't thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. It's God acting in history. He's acting out the big story of redemption in the life of his people. Uh, for example, the Exodus event where God has his people under the bondage of slavery and death. This is the easiest one to understand. Uh, under the bondage of, of, of slavery to the Egyptians. He rescues those people out of that slavery through the waters of death and brings them into the promised land. 
by bringing about a, a, a reversal of fortunes on the Egyptians, destroying the Egyptian nation and raising his people up out of that slavery. And that event then serves like as the model or the picture of salvation throughout the rest of the Bible. The, the prophets, the New Testament authors are constantly going back to the Exodus event and comparing what's happening with that so that we'll understand that what God was doing was giving us this physical model, this real story that happened in real time as a, as a mental foothold for what he's doing spiritually. In the same way that the Israelites were brought out of the slavery to Egypt, we're being brought out of the slavery to sin and to death and to hell. And God is bringing us through death, the chaos waters of death of the Red Sea or the chaos waters of death and into new life and bringing us into the promised land of the new creation. Spiritually, that's what Jesus is doing for us, bringing us out of the slavery of hell, of the slavery of sin, and delivering us into this whole new creation. That's how the Old Testament really dealt with, that's how prophecy was laid out by God. So the minor prophets, they take those pictures, like the pictographs of Egyptian, old Egyptian writing, and they translate it. This is what this means for the future. And if you know what they're saying, and you know how they're saying it, uh, they're saying what they're saying is breathtakingly beautiful about the things that uh, our future holds for us. And in this passage, Zechariah does just that. He calls in verse 6 and 7. He calls he's, uh, the speaker in the prophetic book, the speaker in Zechariah 2, calls his people home from being scattered and enslaved. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. This is not like a hopeful calling, like you call your kids in from outside and maybe they're going to come, maybe they're not going to come. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is, a, this is more like a summons. God is calling upon his people. He calls, he summons them, and they come. Just as the Israelites, God summoned them, and they came out of the slavery of Egypt. God is calling his people, and they're coming out of exile and into their heavenly home. Uh, in verse 4, he says, God's people... He promises God's people will be more powerful and more prosperous than the greatest city on earth, which was saying something at the time. Uh, He says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The idea is that there will be so many people in Jerusalem and they will have so much livestock, which represents wealth in the ancient world that they will spread so far across the land that no wall would even be possible to encompass them. And we see in the Old Testament, Israel is promised the land of Israel. And when we get to the New Testament, Paul translates that and says they were actually promised the entire earth or the entire new creation of new heavens and new earth Just as Israel was promised to be as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens, so too will God's people 
be so numerous and so prosperous that nothing on earth can compare. And in verse 5, God promises that he himself will be a wall of fire around her. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Not just a wall, but a sanctifying barrier. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we see that when God put Adam and Eve into exile out of the garden, what did he do? He put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way back to his holy, his holy temple. In the book of Revelation, we see the same. The descending Jerusalem comes from out of the sky to heaven. God's people are inside. The enemies of God are all outside, and there's a dividing wall of fire between them. We see the Exodus event, that God put a wall of fire and smoke between the Egyptians and the Israelites to protect them and bring them into safety. Uh, this is the wall of sanctifying fire of God's holiness, protecting God's people in and holding the enemies of God and those who've rejected God on the out. And he says in verse 9 that God himself will bring about a reversal of fortunes. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. This again, also looking back to the Exodus, when right before the Israelites left Egypt, God moved in the hearts of the Egyptians to give them all their stuff. It's one of the most amazing parts of that whole story. Israel, the Israelites went to their neighbors and said, hey, can we borrow uh, 50 bullions of gold and 12 cattle and all your fabric and pretty much everything in your house? And everybody gave it to them so that when they went out into the wilderness, they had plundered those who had plundered them. And God brought destruction on Egypt, rose his people into glory. And the speaker here in Zechariah says that that same thing is going to happen in a grander scale, uh, that God himself will shake his hand or shake his fist over the nations and bring them to ruin while God lifts his people up from ruin and into glory. Okay, now that sounds good, right? Wow, that sounds great. But man, isn't that just more promises? Is there anything we can like hold on to? Seems like God hasn't really done anything in a long time that we can point our finger at. And that brings us to the last part, that God has the proven track record to prove it. You know, Peter says in his book that at the end of time, at the end times, the people will say just that. Where, where is the promise of his coming? Where is God? Uh, you talk a lot about God. You talk a lot about these promises. But all I see are, all I see is hardship and pain and suffering and uh, decline. I don't know. It's not super convincing to me. Where is the promise of his coming forever since the fathers fell asleep? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Things have always been the same. Uh, and they're always going to be the same. 
And maybe we're just foolish to hold on to this hope. That's an argument that's brought up all the time. Okay, Christians, still waiting? <laughs> still waiting for Jesus to return? Uh, it's, been, it's been a minute now. It's been 2,000 years. Come on, man. Well, in this passage in Zechariah, the speaker, he puts some time stamps on when these things will happen. Some of these things will happen uh, that we can hang on to. The first time stamp is that he says this, that God will be dwelling with us or living with us in some way. He says, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That could be a little ambiguous. God dwelled in the temple. God dwelled with Israel in the tabernacle. And yet those, both, both of those are past. Both of those are destroyed at the time of this writing. And so it has to be really sometime in the near future from then when the Lord will come and dwell with his people. Uh, but it gives us another time stamp. And this one nails it down in history. It says that, that salvation, the covenant that God has made with his people, the covenant of grace, will no longer just be an Israelite thing. At some point in history, God makes this promise, this crazy promise, to these people who have nothing, no political power, no king, no city, no temple, nothing. He makes them a promise that the entire world is going to one day be joined to Israel and all throughout the world, every ethnic group across the globe will worship the God of Israel. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Now, to me, that's the most remarkable prophecy in the whole Old Testament. You know why? Because... I mean, well, the prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold Jesus, where he'd be born, who he was, what he would do, you know, all those are remarkable prophecies. Uh, and when you put them all together, you know, I like to tell people to, like, for, for shock value that Christianity is empirically provable. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's a religion. It's just a uh, religions are like feelings, you know, they're not based in fact whatsoever, and I, and I say, well, actually they are. The prophetic record shows us that for one man to just accidentally have fulfilled all the prophecies in the Old Testament about him are one in 10 to the 17th power. There's an actual whole, there's a whole book called Science Speaks by a man named Peter Stoner who took the science of statistical probabilities uh, and use that science on the, prophet, the prophetic record itself and showed that for one man to randomly uh, fulfill all those prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's hard. One in 10 to the 17th, unless you're a math major, you have no idea what that means. It's, it's a 10 with 17 zeros after it. Think about that. It's the same thing as taking silver dollars and, and filling the state of Texas two feet deep and then, and then sending you out, putting an X on one silver dollar 
and putting it somewhere in that pile and saying to you, okay, go pick the X, find the silver dollar with the X. That's the blindfolded. That's the same chance that one man could have fulfilled all the prophecies about Jesus, right? Just, so just those prophecies empirically prove that whoever was preaching, whoever was prophesying about Jesus was receiving that information from outside time and space. And therefore, it is, ne it is necessarily supernatural and more reliable than our own speculations. However, that's just one stream of prophecy. There's this whole other stream that says that all the nations of the world will start to worship Israel's God. What a crazy thing to say at that time in history when the, every, they had nothing but a charred foundation. And they're still saying this. Zechariah, the speaker uh, that's speaking through Zechariah is saying, one day your faith will spread throughout the whole earth. Uh, and we know when that happened, don't we? We know that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born, who fulfilled all those prophecies that I just talked about in the very first advent, and that from that time forward, the Gentiles, all the ethnic groups of the world, began to attach themselves to Israel's God. It's something that happened, it's began in 33 AD, and it's still going on to this day. As more and more people attach themselves, it was a mystery in the Old Testament, but the mystery is now revealed. Paul says that the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the mystery is revealed, and now also the speaker in Zechariah is revealed. Who is it that came and dwelled among us? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Son of God is speaking through Jeremiah, promising that he's going to accomplish these things, that they will happen. And we, on the other side of the cross, have seen that those things have happened. The first advent did happen. All the nations have come to follow Israel's God. And it's happening now. It's still happening throughout this whole age. God did come and dwell among us as a human, and he dwells among us still in his spirit. God has been efficaciously, meaning God has been calling and summoning his people to himself from every tongue and tribe and nation of people on earth out of the slavery of sin and death made possible by the incarnate God dying on the cross and erasing the sins of his people and bringing them to himself. And the heavenly city, Jerusalem, is already more populous and more prosperous than any city has ever been on earth. And that's saying something. I've been to China where the, a small city in China is 12 million people. A big city in China is 24 million people. Or you, you stand in the center of the city and there's literally skyscrapers in all four directions as far as you can see. If you can see through the smog, that is. And our people, God has been collecting our people from throughout all time. So that the, 
the saints in heaven outnumber the saints on earth. And God already surrounds us as a wall of fire protecting us and will continue to, especially for those who, where physical protection is impossible or illegal. God is still a wall of protection around us. And God will bring about the total reversal of fortunes. The world will fall. The church will be glorified. When Jesus returns again, this time not in humility and in secret, but out in the open and in all of the power of the Son of God descending from the realms of endless day into his creation. And how do we know? Because of the track record. I mean, we could just, just that one fact that Jesus was born and fulfilled all the prophecies and that all the nations of the earth began to worship Israel's God. Just those two things alone are ample proof that God is going to do what he said. And we add to that, we can add to that the reality of the exodus. We can add to that the reality of God's promise to bring the exiles back to the, to the land. We add to that all the promises that God has made and fulfilled over time. Uh, and we can see that God has a track record. He has been faithful in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. You know, Peter calls us, you know what the New Testament calls us? Again, it calls us exiles and sojourners. Our model is not the glory of Israel and the Davidic kingdom and the rulers of the kings on earth, as we like to imagine ourselves. Our model in the Bible are is the saints of Israel who have been spread out throughout the world without any earthly power in exile as sojourners on the earth yet full of the spirit and full of spiritual power to be God's witnesses on the earth. Uh, that's what the Old Testament calls us. It, it does that on purpose to let us know like what period of time we're in, what we can expect in our sojourning here, but also what we can expect when our Lord, the God of glory, finally brings an end to this age and brings us into the next. And we can know that it's true because he's always been faithful in the past. He will come true in the future. And the prophet, the speaker, who is Jesus, he ends this chapter by, with this line that seems, it almost seems out of place if you don't understand everything that he's just said. He says, at the very end, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And again, this is not just like the summons of God to his people wasn't a request, it was a summons. This isn't a request to be silent to your kids who may be quiet and maybe not. It's a command, and it's more than a command. Uh, this is a description of the response of the world when God reveals himself. We'll conclude with this story. We, my daughter, Hannah, used, loved lions, and we bought her for Christmas the stuffed lion 
And I would teach her, Hana, what does the lion say? And she would put up her claw and say, rawr, rawr, like kids do. Well, we had the opportunity to take her to the San Diego Zoo where they have a lion exhibit where a full-grown male lion is literally a a foot away from you behind nothing but uh, a chain-link fence. Uh, And we put Hana up on the the guardrail, and every time the lion would walk by us, Hana would look at the lion and go, rawr, rawr. You know, she was uh, seeing the lion as cute, seeing the lion as not really a threat, and she was exercising her power over the lion, letting the lion know that she, too, was powerful. And then the lion stopped in front of us and roared. And I mean, roared, roared. Have you ever heard a lion roar in person? I don't even know how to explain it. My first thought, I mean, I wasn't, didn't think anything after the fact. My thought was, how did that sound come out of something so small? I mean, this tall. There's stories about you know, people being paralyzed by the roar of the lion and the lion then attacking them in their paralyzed state, and that was us. When that lion roared, Hannah stopped midstream. I shut up and was literally paralyzed, could not move, could not think. We were literally stunned into silence when the lion roared. Hannah responded by filling her diaper in silence. She may not have been the only one. (laughs) It's a perfect story to understand. There is coming a time when the lion is going to step out from the shadows of reality, from behind the veil of eternity, and roar. And when he does, the whole earth will fill their diapers. The whole earth will be shocked and stunned into silence at the power and majesty of the Lord God. But what will we do? We will sing and rejoice. That's what it says to us. Sing and rejoice because we know that that power is our deliverance. And we can know that that will happen because God's promises are always true. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you've given us and the way you've given us these pictures and images that transcend all cultures and time and places, knowing that your people would encompass uh, the entirety of humanity that the scripture that you have written, this transmission from the realms of endless day, from the supernatural world that you have given us, you did it in such a way that it still makes sense to us thousands of years later, and we can understand what you're saying. It may seem like the church is weak, and we are, but you're not, and you are the power behind us. And you promise to sustain us. And you promise to bring us through the fiery wall and into our celestial home. 
And we know that that's true because you have a proven track record of coming through on your promises. So we pray, Lord, this Advent season that we would remember your greatness and your majesty and just the awesome, in every sense of the word, scope of the Christmas story and what it means and what it means for us and for our future so that we might be as grateful as we ought to be and so that we might worship you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.